wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio. Here we are, Friday, November 22nd, 2013. This week, episode 307 comes to you from the archives of Studio D in Central City, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes, and with me in the studio is Jessica Lawson. Good afternoon, everyone. Good day, Jess. Got any music for you? We're going to just keep going. Uh, just keep Let's going just today. keep going today. All right. Today we're going to bring one out of the archives, a flashback Friday with Dr. Rachel Hers. Dr. Hers is going to talk about scent, odors, and indoor air quality. She was a professor at Brown University and has been conducting research on the sense of smell for 19 years. She's considered to be one of the world's leading experts in olfactory psychology and psychobiology. She is an author of the first popular book about olfactory psychology, The Scent of Desire, Discovering Our Enigmatic Sense of Smell. And it has been received in numerous accolades, including being selected as a finalist for the 2009 AAAS Subaru Prize for Excellence in Science Books. Dr. Hurst serves on several advisory boards, including the Fragrance Foundation, and she consults for many of the world's leading multinational flavor and fragrance companies. And she's also an expert witness for legal cases involving the sense of smell. It's a show we did back in January of 2009. It was episode 109. Jessica has remixed and edited for us. But before we do that, we've got to make sure we thank our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. And I'd also like to say thanks to Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. The good folks at Legends say hello to Brian out there. And before we get started with the show, I do want to put together, I'm going to, I see Andy on the line there, so I've got a, I made up a trivia question for you here, Andy. Let's see if you can pull this one out. You might have to listen. What unusual odor does Dr. Hare's, Dr. Hers find pleasant that many others might disagree with her on? So that's today's IAQ Radio trivia question, sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners. And of course, last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to Jessica to see if we can't get back into the archives and check out Dr. Harris. All right. Well, let's start with a little bit of basics and uh, a little background on the the scent, uh, the the detection of scent. How long does it take for us as humans to detect a scent or a fragrance? 
Well, it takes the nose about half a second to detect a scent, and then that time is actually doubled for in terms of the brain being able to recognize that you've smelled something. And this is, in fact, incredibly slow when you when you realize that it, in vision, it's 100 times faster than this for detection. It's only 45 milliseconds for us to know that we've seen something. So smell is our slowest sense by far. I guess, do we dream and smell a vision? Do we uh, smell when we dream? Well, actually, we do not smell while we dream. And a colleague of mine who is a sleep research expert, we conducted an experiment to see actually whether or not you actually smell the bacon and then wake up or vice versa. And it turns out that you have to wake up first in order to smell the bacon. We actually cannot smell while we were in either deep sleep or dreaming sleep. When we're in very light sleep, it's possible to have a little bit of olfactory sensation, but not in, not in dreaming sleep and not in deep sleep. So what happens to Typically, we don't realize it, but we have these little micro-awakenings, and they occur more frequently in the morning. So the idea of, you know, smelling the coffee and that wakes you up or the bacon and so forth is because we've had this little tiny episode of actually being awake, and that's when that smell can get in, and then we might get more aroused, and that might wake us up because we realize we're hungry, and that's a fantastic smell. That's, that's very interesting, and, and in fact, that would make a smoke detector very important, I assume. <laughs> well, yes, actually, this has really serious implications, and you know, people have contacted me who have been involved in lawsuits where you know, the smoke detector didn't work or they didn't have a smoke detector, and in fact, there was one, I think, period of time where people, there was a little bit of an advocacy for odor smoke detectors, and the idea is that those are completely useless, um, and you really do need an auditory alarm. You, you will wake up from high-frequency noises and high uh, amplitude noises, but you will not for the same when it comes to smell. You know, what's interesting is I remember when I was a college freshman, I was in a dorm and uh, one of the students actually uh, was deaf, couldn't hear. And the subject of safety came up and they actually had in his room this strobe light. It was like a red strobe light. And when the fire alarm would go on, this strobe light, you know, would actually uh, wake him up. Pretty interesting. Yeah. Doctor... No, I was going to say light can do that too. And actually, I know that for um, deaf people, one of the things that they do is is vibration. So they'll have a certain mechanism associated with the bed that will vibrate the bed for deaf people. But strobe lights also there's there's new alarm clocks, quote unquote, that will that activate by turning on their light so that they sort of mimic the sun in your face. So interesting. You know, I've been. I haven't gotten through the whole book yet because I've been swamped with some other things. But and also, it's been tough to wrestle it away from my wife. Uh, <laughs> she she got a hold of it and loved it, and it's it's really fascinating. One of the things that I was a little bit familiar with, but not as familiar as I am now, is how closely related the senses of smell and taste are, and they're actually entwined essentially. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about why? Our, our sense of smell is so important to what we taste? Well, actually, in terms of sort of correct definition, smell and taste are quite different. Taste, however, is really only the simple sensations of salt, sour, sweet, bitter, and this fifth taste that's been identified called umami, which is sort of a taste of protein or um, monosodium glutamate, which is where it was first discovered in Japan. But everything else that we colloquially refer to as taste actually comes from smell. And what the real word for that is flavor. So for instance, if you bought bit into a piece of steak and you did not have smell, all you would experience is salt. So the smell, the aroma, 
coming from the volatiles in the meat and the fat and so forth, which we actually smell through our mouth because there's opening into the nose from the back of the mouth, is how we get the experience of flavor, which we typically call taste. Um, how, how is smell and human emotion entwined, Dr. Well, there, there's definitely an interaction that is very intense and actually unique to the sense of smell. And this has to do with the fact that the part of the brain that processes smell is literally directly connected to the part of the brain that processes emotion. And none of our other senses has this direct intimate contact with, in, in terms of neuroanatomy. Moreover, uh, it turns out that from a neuroevolutionary perspective, the part of the brain that processes emotion literally grew out of tissue that was just originally for olfaction. So something I like to ponder is whether or not we would even experience emotion, or at least as we do if we did not have a sense of smell. And functionally, smell and emotion are really about the same sorts of things. I mean, we don't use smell the way other animals do. We use vision for our major data collection and analyzing, interpreting the world, and so on. But what smell still tells us and what it tells all other animals is about survival. This is good, approach, this is bad, avoid, and so on. And emotions tell us the exact same thing. So I sort of think that emotion is kind of an abstract cognitive version of the sense of smell and used by humans the way smell is used by other animals. I recall reading that we're a little different from other animals with respect to smell because they have a more, I don't know if I'll explain this right or not, but I'm sure you'll fix it for me. They have a more powerful innate remember or memory of certain smells and we are more of a generalist that uh, is a group of people, you know, we can exist in many different environments. Can you explain a little bit about that to the listeners? Okay, so actually, um, there's, you're, I think you're talking about sort of two things. One is that we are slightly different from other animals in the sense that we have a smaller area of the brain dedicated to smell and fewer functional olfactory receptors that are activated to smell, so our sense of smell is generally less sensitive or acute than other animals, you know, dogs, mice, and so forth, who actually use their sense of smell much more so than we do from the point of view of, of their daily life. But the other thing you're talking about has to do with different types of species and whether they, not, they live in restricted ecological habitats where they're only going to encounter certain prey or certain predators and other animals, and we are one of them, but we're not the only one. Rats and cockroaches are also very successful in this category of what's called generalists, which means that we, can, we cockroaches and rats, can live anywhere and sort of eat the local food, whatever it happens to be, and adapt to the local predators. And, in fact, for us, we really don't have much of a, have a predator except for each other. Um, but in any case, what this means is that it turns out that animals that are called specialists, the ones that live in these very restricted niches, have, when they are born, an innate sense of what is predator and what is prey. So, for example, a panda bear knows that bamboo is food. And, you know, that is its cue for food, and if it, it knows it has to eat that, if it, and it can't eat anything else. And likewise, other animals know specifically what their predators are, you know, without having to learn this particular animal is, is going to eat me. Whereas animals that are generalists, like we are, have to actually learn what is food and what is predator and so forth, depending upon the environment we come into. So the smell that corresponds to a given food in a different environment may not be 
indicative of the same thing. So in one place, one smell could mean poison mushroom, and in another locale, that same smell could mean delicious, nutritious food. So we have to actually learn that firsthand, either depending upon you know, the environment from our social groups that we might already be told by elders and so on, or by stumbling across it and then making the mistake ourselves. Um, I guess, uh, you know, one thing that I, I found interesting in, in the book that, that I'd like you to, to talk about is the fact that when you did these blind studies, you can actually give garments worn uh, to different people and they could tell whether or not men had worn the garment or gar or women had worn the garment. And then there's this ability for mother to recognize baby and baby to recognize mother. Can you comment on that? Yeah, actually, I mean, just to one thing, I actually have not done those studies personally, but um, those who have done it, in terms of identifying gender, we're reasonably good at that, but really we're, we're using is the heuristic of if it smells stronger, it's male. Um, and that's not always true, but generally speaking, it is true. So that's where the being able to recognize is that T-shirt worn by a man or a woman, that's sort of, you know, using that as the, as the factor for intensity. But definitely there's something special going on between mother and infant where they are able to specifically recognize each other's scent. And infants can do this very shortly after birth, um, within the first couple of days, mothers can actually do it within the first hour after they've given birth, being able to recognize their baby as different from another one-hour-old infant that happens to not be theirs. And it seems that part of what's going on is a sort of recognition of self, because at this point in time, there's still amniotic fluid, which is part of the sort of body odor of the infant. And also the mother, because she's given birth, has a certain scent to her, which is sort of characteristic of the amniotic fluid. And because of which her own biology and her own specific experiences make her amniotic fluid smell unique to her because we all have a unique body odor. And so the infant has actually partially been acquiring this throughout its period of gestation. And the mother, using her own self kind of as a little bit of a marker, is able to say, well, that's the baby that is mine. There was another point about the commonality that exists between alcohol, alcoholism and taste. Can you comment on that? Well, yeah, this is a very interesting finding that turns out that people who are who become alcoholics generally are not sensitive to the taste of bitter. That is to say that they don't find bitterness to be particularly aversive, and there's a specific test that you can give to see how sensitive you are to bitter, and they generally fall into being what are called non-tasters, that is, they don't taste this particular compound, and if you do taste this compound, it's excruciatingly bitter, but also all bitter things tend to be very bitter to you, and you tend to sort of avoid bitter foods. Now, alcohol is bitter, and the sort of classic behavioral um, factor that underlies becoming an alcoholic is how long you've been drinking and how much you've been drinking. And if you never had to get over the barrier of alcohol sort of tasting yucky when you were a teenager or whatever and having to sort of get over that hump or needing to have, you know, lots of sweet fruit juices and other things mixed in with your alcoholic beverages, which also is diluting it, 
If you don't have any of that problem, that means you're probably going to have been exposed to alcohol early on. You don't have any issues with drinking it, so you drink a lot of it. And um, that just continues over your lifespan such that it can get to the point where you do develop alcoholism. And someone who is a, a taster or a super taster for bitter has more of a problem in this category. And it turns out, interestingly, there's a little bit of a reverse thing happening with sweet that people who are um, alcoholics also tend to have higher carbohydrate and sweet cravings. Something that you may have actually noticed is that when you go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, you've maybe even seen this on television when they sort of depict these, there's always the donuts and the coffee in, in, the, in the room. Well, that's not just because, you know, hi, how are you? We have a little, you know, welcome thing for you, but actually because sweet becomes a sort of substitute for alcohol. And part of that has to do with sort of the pleasure that you get from sweet, but also it has to do with uh, a real liking for sweet as well. So there seems to be a higher kind of sweet tooth among people who are alcoholics, which they then substitute definitely with sugar once they're no longer having alcohol. These are generalities, though. I mean, not everyone falls into this category, but in general, compared to people who don't become alcoholics, they have a different response to both sweet and bitter. Dr. Hurst, many of our listeners are what they call indoor environmental professionals, and they investigate complaints regarding indoor environments when there's a you know client living or working there. And some of the most difficult complaints to investigate are, are smell. So what we'd like to do is kind of look in that direction for a moment. What type of information regarding the sense of smell would you recommend IEPs be familiar with or aware of? Well, I mean, one thing that I'm sure they already know is that, you know, it's very hard to localize smells in space. So, you know, you have just because you walk into the room and you smell something, where that scent is emanating from is quite difficult to figure out. And if depending upon the equipment you have, if you were able to detect, you know, concentration gradients, you could see that there was a lower concentration by the door, let's say, but that the, the concentration seemed quite high in the corner, um, you know, that would be indicative of something. So taking air samples from different places in the room to, in order to see concentration may be able to help you figure out where the source is emanating from. Um, so that's certainly something to be aware of. The other thing, I suppose, has to do with people's responses to the scent that they're perceiving and, and how, you know, threatening they feel that that smell is and to the degree that that is, you know, just kind of, you know, it's too bad the room smells like this, I'd rather I didn't smell anything, or is this something serious, do I need to be concerned, is there something dangerous in the room, which the smell is actually just reflecting, but the smell itself could have nothing to do with danger. I was just, I was reviewing a book recently, and it's written by a, a, well, it's written for a group in Canada, and I understand you, you're from Canada originally, or at least you've spent a great deal of time there. Yes. There was a section in there, I wasn't aware of this, but there's a, um, a way of measuring smell, and it's based on the, the typical smell of a human in a in, in an indoor environment, I, I don't recall what it was. What it was called? Do you? Are you familiar with that? I don't know about this particular uh, Canadian technology. I do know about what are called electronic noses, where, which are functionally sort of what I was describing for detectors for specific types of chemicals. But I don't know specifically what you're referring to in the Canadian development. I'll have to get that to you after the <laughs> yeah. show. We'll, we'll get a copy of that to you. Well, you okay, know yeah. my my. Um, 
definition of UFO is unidentified flying object. Uh, what's your definition of a UFO? Well, um, what I sort of jokingly refer to in the book as uh, unidentified foreign odor, and um, this has to do with the sort of why I use that sort of term, why people think of UFOs are sort of, you know, scary and mysterious, and people tend to think of odors that way, too, when they don't know what they are. So we have this sort of innate response to odors. I mean, if we have any innate response to odors, it's fear of the unknown. And this is actually a general response we have to things that, you know, if I don't know it, I'm going to be more cautious and skeptical. And that's actually an adaptive approach. I mean, better to sort of, you know, take it take it slow when you're trying to sort of see what something is rather than being foolhardy and sort of leaping right in because, you know, you don't know what it could be. But with odor, um, we tend to be sort of extreme with respect to our fear and skepticism often because of the fact that smell is invisible and because we don't know where things are coming from, we tend to imagine that they could be from, you know, very dangerous sources. And when we don't expect a smell to be somewhere or if it sort of doesn't smell right to us um, and or if someone around us is reacting to the smell in a negative way, we very much fall in line with that mentality. And the smell could be completely innocent in itself. And my understanding is from reading the book that some people look at the same smell in completely opposite ways. Can you comment a little bit on that? And I guess it's based on your experience and the, you know, the, the individual's experience with that odor in the past. Yes, exactly. And this is something that I have done a fair bit of research on, that our responses to odors are learned, and this is because we're generalists. If we were specialists, we would come into the world with innate liking and disliking. But because we're generalists, we don't. We're really, you know, odor is like a blank slate to us until we learn that this is a good smell or this is a bad smell from our experience. So, I mean, an example I use in the book is that I like the smell of skunk, um, and many people don't. <laughs> but I had a positive experience with the smell of skunk before I learned the social you know, no-no about skunk. So um, that's my reason for liking skunk. And I was also once told by a woman, and I think this is a great illustration, that she hated the smell of rose because the first time she ever smelled rose was at her mother's funeral. Now, that being said, so we all have individual responses to certain smells, but then culture plays a very large role in terms of teaching us in general what are good smells and bad smells. And we see this very... Um, prominently when it comes to food. I mean, what in one culture is a delicacy is disgusting in another, and often it's the aroma of the food itself, you know, and everything that it signifies that is disgusting as well, or delicious as well, cheese being a great example, where, you know, Westerners tend to love cheese overall and find it, you know, anything from an indulgence to comfort food, whereas Asians think it's the most disgusting thing. And with cheese, you could sort of say in isolation, smelling certain types of cheese as well, this isn't a very sweet smell. It isn't, you know, what I consider a lovely smell, but it's a delicious smell. So the reason why I think this is because of what it's connected to. And um, other cultures or other individuals could have very different responses to that. And this, this falls into, a, a, you know, basically all of our experiences with smell in our life. But the other thing that has a big factor in all of this is the context. So if you know that you're smelling certain smell and I tell you that's cheese and you like cheese and you go, okay, that's great, you know, I'm a, I'm a cheese fan and that particular aroma goes with my thinking of that and I'm going to eat that and so on, that's one thing. But if you smell that exact same chemical 
and I tell you now that it's something really bad, like vomit, and I've actually done this experiment, then you're going to find this absolutely horrific, and you're going to want to sort of leave the room. The last thing you'd ever want to do is put your mouth around it. And um, this, this is something that when I did it in the experiment, I actually had people not believing that they were smelling the same chemical at both instances, because to them it seemed so different. And in fact, it was exactly the same chemical, and the only thing that I'd done was tell them one word when I handed them a jar to smell, either cheese, Parmesan cheese in particular in this case, or vomit. And, and this just goes to show how dramatic the effect of context and expectation can be in terms of setting us up for liking or disliking a certain smell. And when it comes to being fearful of smells, we're generally in the mindset of whatever that is is scary. And actually an incident happened in New York City a couple of years ago where there was this strange, sweet um, kind of caramelly maple smell. So not something that we would normally think of as, you know, maybe this has a danger component to it. Actually, a sort of a, a bakery candy smell. And because people didn't know where it was coming from, and because of sort of post 9-11 uh, neuroticism in New York City that may be well-earned, but nevertheless is, is certainly part of the, the mentality. People were panicking. They were calling the emergency phone lines. They were, you know, completely freaking out. The telephones and the police stations were ringing off the hook. And then just as sort of a mysteriously as it came, it, it disappeared. No one ever found out what it was from. There was never any, you know, when they did air sampling, there was nothing dangerous or poisonous in the air. So, but the idea that even what we could consider, you know, a very positive smell through all of our general experiences can turn into something terrifying just because the expectation can set us up like that. And one final thing just to, to throw into this, there is the case, though, that certain smells actually irritate our noses and our eyes. Like if you smell ammonia, that, that burns. And that's actually due to the fact that our trigeminal system, which is innervating the the nose and eyes and face, um, it's, it's the pain detection, heat detection, cool detection that we have, nerves running through our face and also our mouth. That's being stimulated by the chemical. And that's where we might find that this smell is aversive. But actually, if we could take out the trigeminal component, the smell per se would not be aversive. I'm going to ask, do we really smell, Americans smell like cheese to the Asians? Um, well, it, you know, our diet certainly has a big impact on how we smell. We tend to eat a lot of dairy. Asians obviously don't since they think it's disgusting. So, you know, it's certainly probably a major component of, you know, the dietary aspect of Westerners' smell. So to that extent, that may be true. And, and we, since we both like it and because we're exposed to it a lot, probably don't notice it amongst each other. So I don't know that... You know, that I've heard that expression as well, and, you know, certainly that's something that's kind of colloquially noted and anecdotal, but there hasn't actually been research per se on that. But there's certainly, I could understand why that would be an anecdotal response. Okay, I feel a little better now. Okay. <laughs> um, doctor, what's a psychogenic illness? A psychogenic illness is basically an illness, so you actually have physical symptoms, you feel shortness of breath, um, asthma, whatever. Um, hot and cold, but it's produced by your mind as opposed to something out there physically assaulting you. So, you know, and, and this is something people sort of discount, except under certain circumstances, the power of the mind over matter, over the body. But certainly, if you just sit there for a minute and you start to think about something really terrible, um, you could get highly anxious. Your heart could start to pound and all sorts of other things. And no one did anything to you. There was nothing happening from the outside. Your mind just produced inside of you a, a high state of anxiety or 
conversely, you could start to think about something really happy and exciting and, and start to feel all sorts of things physiologically as well as psychologically as a function of just the emotions that your own brain generated in you by thinking things. So we can, and panic attacks actually are classic examples of, you know, really kind of serious you know, physical reactions, and certainly from the perception of the individual having them, you know, very sort of, you know, almost terrifying that you feel like you're going to die and so on. And it's completely produced by your brain, your mind, sort of construing some piece of information in a certain way to to induce this high degree of panic when really nothing has happened. No one's done anything from you to the outside. You haven't ingested anything dangerous or poisonous. It's It's your mind that actually does it to you. I was fascinated while reading the book at how undervalued the sense of smell is. And I, I must admit, I fall in that category. I, until reading it and starting to think about it, I didn't realize how important it was in our daily lives and probably a you know, lifelong, uh, unless, of course, we lose our sense of smell, which we can talk about. Why is the sense of smell so undervalued? And is it that way worldwide? Yeah, and actually, I'm so glad that you said what you just said because I wrote my book so that people would sort of realize that they should appreciate being able to smell the, the roses, um, you know, in case they ever had the terrible misfortune of not being able to smell the roses anymore. And it is generally the case that people tend to think of their sense of smell as just like, you know, well, probably as important as my big toe. And in fact, a colleague of mine at the University of Pennsylvania did a, a study where people actually ranked losing their big toe as bad as it would be to lose your sense of smell. And, you know, that's in my mind ridiculous. Um, the American Medical Association also ranks the value of losing your sense of smell as between 1% and 5% of your total, you know, personal value. Again, you know, minuscule with respect to something like what they rank vision, 85%. And the reason for our undervaluing smell, I think, comes from a few different angles. One of them is we are still, you know, suffering the byproducts of Victorian society. And the mentality there was, you know, animal smell, the lower classes smell, the uncivilized smell, and so forth. And smell in, in itself, the word, has a negative connotation. So we sort of discount, we dismiss smell in and of itself. So we, we sort of want to distance ourselves from smell period, like sort of as a general mentality. That, I think, is changing, and it certainly hasn't always been like this. So over time in culture in, in Western history, it's really gone up and down in terms of how you know, people appreciate smell or they want to you know, not have anything to do with it. So we're sort of coming off the crest of a not wanting to have anything to do with it, period. So we have that aspect. We also have the fact that it is true that, you know, we are primarily visual creatures and we get our information about the world, our most important data, so to speak, about the world through our eyes. And because of that, you know, we really, and also our ears to a certain extent, so the, the visual and the verbal are our main sort of sensory tools. And the other senses in our mind, we sort of go, well, yeah, whatever, um, not so important. I mean, people think of, you know, touch even as not being so important until they start to realize, other than sort of the pleasure aspect or the issue that, you know, pain is important too under certain circumstances, um, sort of discount that. So everything else is less important than than vision, and smell tends to be relegated to the bottom of the heap. And for many reasons, and people don't realize, I mean, even when it comes to food, people don't realize that it's really the majority of their experience of food has to do with smell. And then everything else with respect to 
our lives really has smell highly embedded within it, and we don't realize it until we can't smell anymore. And then it's, it's this huge shock to people. And in fact, the motivation in writing my book was this woman who I met when I was an expert witness in her case of having, she had an accident and she lost her sense of smell. And the case that was being made to the insurance company was that this was not trivial. It wasn't, you know, a 1% of her whole life value loss. This was in fact much, much more than that. And what I was so struck by in speaking to her was one, she said, just like you, that she really had never paid attention to her sense of smell before. She just completely took it for granted. And how now she realized how everything from, especially from the point of view of her interpersonal life, her emotional life, her ability to socialize with others, her sense of herself, her ability to be intimate with her husband, everything that sort of had to do with her, you know, general being other than, you know, knowing how to cross the street because a car is coming um, was involved with smell and that without it, she was just completely lost. And, you know, this particular case just struck me because she was so upset. You know, she really lamented the fact that she had never, you know, given smell its due worth while she had it and and how badly she was really suffering from not having it. Was the legal team uh, successful in uh, convincing, uh, you know, the insurance company or a judge or a jury that this was more valuable than previously thought? Yes. And in all the cases that I have been involved with, they have um, done quite well with respect to settlements and in convincing, you know, specific uh, juries and insurance companies that this is something that's highly valuable. I don't, the American Medical Association hasn't caught up to changing their, um, the value they have signed to smell, at least not yet. But when I have presented uh, both with respect to the individual in the case and how their life has suffered, but also with, you know, just general facts about how smell works and, and why it is so important to all sorts of aspects of life, they, they do realize that this person has, in fact, you know, suffered a very tremendous loss for the quality of their life. So it's, it's worked out well. <laughs> okay. Well, Doctor, if you'd please hang on with us. Uh, we're going to pause. It's, it's half time, time for a uh, commercial message, and then we'll bring in Dr. Weil, and then we'll continue. Very good. Okay. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, let's go to Dr. Wild. Hello, dear, do we have you on the line? Absolutely. Good afternoon or good day, whatever it is. Good day, Dieter. Dieter, any comments or questions from the first half? Oh, yeah, uh, uh, several. I have a dear friend. In fact, you know him, Peter from Germany. I know him for 55 or so years. Uh, he was in a car accident, and something happened. I don't even know what, but basically he cannot smell anymore, which is a pretty, a pretty nasty life. 
because you know you can't enjoy food. We mentioned that that the smell and the taste are some you know, they go together. It is a terrible thing for him. And I said, hey, what do you want to eat? And I said, well, I don't really care. As long as it has some calories in it, I eat it. I don't care what it tastes like. <laughs> uh, because he can't smell, which is, uh, I mean, which is terrible. And it was mentioned over here in, in a court case, you know, how, my, how, much, how much is that worth? 1%, 2% of your life? It's a very difficult question. Uh, the other thing that I liked is I studied years ago, uh, when I was at the Graduate School of Public Health, um, irritants, and uh, that went via the trigeminal nerve. And I guess the trigeminal nerve is also, it certainly reacts to irritants, but apparently it is also necessary to uh, perceive smells. Uh, we used mice in, in, in that particular uh, uh, instance. And the other comment is, um, Joe knows that, a couple of people know that. I was born in India, and there were a couple of um, uh, pieces of, 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 of my, uh, parents that my uh, uh, parents brought back from India to Germany, and I have still one year at home. There is one smell that I probably smelled when I was three or four years old, and until today, if that smell is here, a mile from here, I will recognize this. Uh, that, to me, is unbelievable. I know exactly what it smells as that. That is it. It's not this. It's not that and any of that. It, just, uh, it is so incredibly specific. Excellent comments, Dieter. Can we bring you back at the end? Uh, sure, yeah. I, yeah. Just another thing. I remember when sure. I was at, Pitt, at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, we did smell exercises, and basically what we had, we had a, it was a tube where we diluted from, for, for nose one, two, three, four, five, and six, I think we had, we diluted certain solvents uh, by a factor of 10 and had people smell it. And the other thing that bothered, or not bothered, that was interesting to me, there are some people, they put their nose in there. That the nose is the only instrument we have to measure smell. They put their nose in there and said, oh, my God, that stinks. And another guy comes in there and I said, what the hell are you talking about? I don't smell anything. That's okay with me. <laughs> so there is, a, a, there is quite a, a, a variety of sensitivity to smells. All right. Well, thank you, Dieter. We'll bring you back at the end if, that's fine, if that works for you. Certainly. Okay, let me go back to Cliff and then we'll go sure. to hers. Uh, uh, doctor, you mentioned the situation in New York, and I remember it as well, where they had this maple smell and it was unidentified. Are there any other documented historical situations in which this has occurred that, you know, where we've had widespread panic? Um, yes. I mean, there, the case that occurred in Germany over the Coca-Cola recall was one such case where um, these school children, that what they had was they were being given, they had gotten Coke in the cafeteria through fountain drinks. So there was a sort of a big solution that was mixed up and then, you know, provided to the schools. And in this particular case, there was a slight bit of um, a sulfurous smell that somehow got into the fountain formula such that didn't have anything to do with anything, and it was just, you know, it was completely benign in and of itself, but there was a little bit of an off smell to the Coke. And whatever happened to first instigate 
the first child who had the response of smelling it and then thinking maybe because of its sort of rotten eggy smell and, and, you know, that sort of maybe made him sick, that then as a function of him saying that he felt ill, this, you know, practically the entire school felt ill as well. And not only that, a bunch of neighboring schools that had never even had the Coke, the children in the, in the school started saying that they were ill and so on and so forth. And this sort of spread like wildfire. And, um, you know, the hospitals were inundated with people coming in and saying how they were sick as a function of having smelled this. So now that's sort of another one in recent history. And certainly there have been a number of cases that have been written up where, um, you know, that happen in certain locales like schools, which is one of the ones that I've even been involved with in an expert witness uh, sort of in situation and one that I've also recently read about that had to do with the school where um, I believe that the teacher actually in one room said that she thought she smelled something like gasoline. And then, you know, staff and students from across the school that had nothing to do, no air contact at all with this one room, um, were filing into the emergency room. Even when they opened the school five days later, people were saying that they were sick and going back to the emergency. And I think some, you know, very large number of people, 71 people I think it was, were, were treated for, you know, somehow poison gas exposure. None of them had any traces of any sort of toxic substance in them. And none of them actually had any physically discernible uh, disease state. So no one had a, you know, a rash. No one had anything that could be sort of physically sort of identified. Nevertheless, these people were saying they felt sick. They were saying they felt fatigued um, and so on. So these are just sort of classic examples of how through suggestion, and I said that expectation can have an enormous impact in smell, you have this whole mindset set up that I've been exposed to something dangerous that I shouldn't be exposed to. And all of a sudden, I'm feeling itchy. I'm feeling short of breath. I'm feeling all sorts of other things. And you really are feeling itchy and short of breath. It's not that that's not real, but that it's your mind that did it as opposed to something else. I've got a quick question before we move on to another topic. We want to talk a little bit about multiple chemical sensitivity, which is an issue a lot of our listeners have to deal with. But a lot of our listeners are also indoor environmental professionals. And this is one one uh, occupation where I think the, the sense of smell is really one of the important things that we have to have and we have to understand a little bit more about. And that's because most of your guidance documents and standards that talk to you about how to do a final clearance or post mitigation verification, whatever you want to call it, after a disaster restoration situation like a water damage or a sewage overflow or after a mold remediation, there are two very important steps that have to be done first, a thorough visual inspection to make sure that everything's been cleaned, and then a thorough odor inspection, essentially, to make sure that any MVOCs, volatile organic compounds, musty, mildewy odors have been, uh, are gone um, once the area, before the area can be cleared and brought back to, you know, occupancy. Can you give any recommendations for people who do this and um, to help them maybe be a little better at performing this smell test at the end of these projects? 
Um, well, actually, I'm going to first refer to something that Dieter brought up just a few minutes ago, and the idea that people are different with respect to their sensitivities to smells, and that's actually true in the in the literal sense of sensitivity. That is to say, that at what concentration am I able to detect a specific chemical compound? And you know, you and I may have quote unquote normal sense of smell, but I may be able to detect certain chemicals before you can at different concentrations, or vice versa. I mean, one of the reasons why I may like the smell of skunk is potentially because I can't smell, or at least I don't smell as very strong, some of the volatile compounds that are within the skunk bouquet. I mean, that's, that is possible. And it turns out that you know, there may be um, genetic differences in, the, in the, both number and the type of specific receptors that are expressed in the olfactory system between individuals, and that this, what this really translates to more generally is intensity. So the more I am sensitive to something, the sooner I'm going to be able to detect it. And also, if it's at moderate concentrations, I'm more likely to find it aversive because everything it gets more unpleasant the more intense it is. The, 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 the nicest sound can become, you know, completely terrible if it's at a very high volume and so forth. So the same thing goes for smell and everything in our other senses. So that's a general thing. So people who are in this profession, you know, just like perfumers and chefs, probably would be a good idea if they were noses um, in the sense that they, that they are better than average in terms of their ability to detect sort of a general body of compounds. Um, so that would probably be just sort of a general help. But everyone can improve their sense of smell by paying attention. And I'm sure people who are doing their job are actually, you know, being very aware and attending to smell. So that's probably not such a major thing, but maybe... And I'm just um, sort of making this up because I haven't, you know, done anything specifically with this. But certainly, sure. people in the perfume industry, what they do is they train themselves, and also chefs and so forth, train themselves to recognize particular aromas that go with particular um, sources. And I'm sure something similar happens in people in the. IAQ industry, where um, you learn that this is the scent of something, so you get used to smelling it, and so that when you are in an environment, you are able to recognize that, okay, that means there's still a little bit of mold in here, or that means there's still the water hasn't completely, you know, dried up, so that you're able to sort of recognize specifically the, the scent detection of, you know, an indication that something might not be 100% yet. So that would be, you know, just kind of training your nose um, for the specifics of the volatiles that you happen to encounter at the workplace would be my sort of best advice for training or improving. I'm really going to change my training courses here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it is exactly what wine taster want people who go into enology in the wine field and in perfumery. Really, they do learn. It's like, you know, smell and tell. You sort of have the whole battery of, you know, aromas that correspond to certain specific sources or states of the grape or whatever the case might be, and you learn very detailed sort of ability to recognize this means this when I smell it. So I think that would be good from a, from a teaching perspective. Well, what I'd like to do is probably get more into um, multi-chemical sensitivity. Do you have a theory on how and why MCS manifests itself? Well, first of all, just as a sort of disclaimer, I don't, I mean, it's, it could definitely be the case that people who are exposed long term to certain chemicals may have real physical reactions to them, um, especially, I mean, and the key in that is long term exposure. So if you are in, an, in a household environment or other workplace environment where there are certain kind of, kinds of chemicals, you may in reality develop an allergy sorry, an allergy to that particular compound. But the 
the general response that multiple chemical sensitivities refers to is that there's some smell, and in some cases, people don't even smell anything. They just believe that there's a smell there and that they report all sorts of physical symptoms as a function of, of there being an odor. And the odor can literally be anything. Um, and so this, I think, my theory anyway, has to do with conditioning and the fact that sort of stemming back from how we learn about smells in the first place through our experience and associations with them. And that what happens is that there has been some sort of a negative episode or maybe some kind of a even physical episode where hyperventilation might have been involved with a certain smell having been sort of present and that being, you know, what that smell was is just random. There was a certain smell there while you start to hyperventilate for some other reason. But that smell then becomes involved so that when you smell that smell again, you actually hyperventilate. And then as a function of sort of further conditioning, whatever smell may be there in the environment where you hyperventilate because there was smell A, maybe there's another smell there too, and then that smell becomes something that you hyperventilate to, and on and on and on, so that it then starts to, you know, involve basically any smell you're going to encounter, and as a, as a function of the fact that you're worried about having to hyperventilate, because you really are hyperventilating, you have this whole negative expectation to any smell, and even to the possibility of a smell when there may not even be a smell present, so that it basically is a, is a building of conditioned negative reactivity to odor that's produced sort of what we were talking about earlier, psychogenically, as opposed to from the physical aspect of it. You know, can you opine on the growing number of cities and towns that are using public policy to attack the alleged toxicity of odors rather than uh, dealing with the potential of an underlying psychological issue? Well, I think that, you know, this has to do with the pendulum. <laughs> and right now, actually, the pendulum is moving upwards with respect to the popularity of scent in general. So we are moving away from that Victorian mentality of deodorizing in, in sort of a global sense. And we are moving more and more towards using fragrance all over the place in our homes, in our work, on our body, in all of our products, and so on. And I think any time that you get, you know, movement accruing in one direction, you're going to get the backlash in the other direction also accruing. And I think that generally the idea, you know, why, you know, going to banning public, you know, use of fragrance and sort of using these sort of legislative reactions rather than sort of dealing with it at, a, at, the, at the more realistic level, I think, is just because it's easier. It's easier to avoid, you know, litigation if we just say, you know, you can't do this. Um, it's easier to sort of just put a general you know, sticker on it rather than having to go into the cause of, you know, the psychological aspect also because I think people who suffer from MCS, you know, are very defensive about it not being psychological because they do really have these physical symptoms. And, and like I said, those physical symptoms are real. It's just the, the question is, where do they come from? Is it truly that this odor is producing a toxicity in your system? Or is it that your system, so to speak, is producing toxicity for you because of your mental reaction to it? And, and I think that it's very hard to sort of deal with that, you know, fine line with people. And so it's easier just to say, okay, let's just not have any fragrance in this particular public place. And, you know, I think that that's unfortunate. And I think that, you know, 
there'll there'll sort of be a, an evening out over time of you know how much these things are taken seriously and how much they sort of are relaxed. But I think because there's so, there has been a sort of very rapid climb in the amount of fragrance use in public places, there's also been a, a strong reactivity. I think as it starts to sort of you know, even out with respect to the amount. So, if you can imagine the the sort of graph going, we've had a high rise um, on the slope, but now as we sort of continue more gently, um, I think public policy, or I hope public policy, also sort of becomes a little bit more gentle. I'm curious. Uh, you did say at the beginning that you know some people do have uh, reactions at lower levels, and uh, especially if they've been exposed over a long period of time. I'm glad you know we we got that groundwork set before going into the possibility of psychological reactions to some of these odors as well. I'm curious, though, on your opinion about the use of deodorizers and these uh, plug-in type deodorizers, et cetera, in, you know, on a regular basis, on a daily basis in numerous homes across the country. Do you think we've gone a little too far uh, with respect to that, or is that something you think is not a problem? Oh, well, I certainly don't think it's a problem physically. Um, the only thing that it can sort of be a problem for is the, own, the person's own enjoyment because, as I'm sure you know, we adapt to, to any scent that we are in constant exposure of uh, relatively rapidly. It only takes between 15 and 20 minutes to adapt to most odors. Some, some odors are actually much faster than that. Um, so the person who's constantly using their air freshener, unless they're changing the fragrance of their air freshener very frequently, then they walk into their house and they don't smell it. They don't, when they go into their car, they don't smell their air freshener. It's only other people who do. So from the point of view of kind of self-pleasure um, that you may get out of making your household smell like a garden, <laughs> then you are not experiencing it except for the first couple of days where you actually use the air freshener. So that I think that's more of the issue from the kind of um, commercial end of it rather than it being anything. I don't believe that there's anything harmful about that at all. And you are, as an expert on, on smell, and I'm, I'm curious, a lot of times people use these to cover up other smells. Does that work? Well, it um, it depends a lot, and I think that, you know, Cliff, you are also an expert on this, that knowing which smells interact with other smells to neutralize them, um, so that certainly can work, and sometimes odors can also just basically mask as a function of their intensity, you know, another background smell. Often, though, depending upon the, the sort of intensity level of the smells, they can mix together so that both of them are perceptible, and often that mix isn't particularly pleasant. So, in fact, it could be worse than the offending odor. So let's just say your house smelled fishy because you made a big dinner of salmon last night, and you don't really like the fishy smell, so you spray your air freshener around. But really what this now does is makes, you know, your house smell like fruit and fish, kind of, but not but something else that's worse than the fish <laughs> in the first place. So, you know, there's certainly issues with respect to how you use certain, you know, products or, you know, what the original smell was and so forth. But there are certainly products that actually do have the real ability to sort of neutralize the, the scent such that there isn't really any scent perceptible. Some of them actually also both neutralize and replace so that, you know, I have a, you know, let's say I have some product that both neutralizes the scent that's there as well as now makes it smell like a garden, for example. Yeah. But it, it's, all, it's very product dependent and also odor dependent, as I'm sure you know. Yeah, nothing to add there. I think that you covered it uh, quite well. Let's talk about you know, public perception of green fragrance versus 
synthetic fragrance. Can you comment uh, on that? Well, yes. And in fact, I've done some research on this. You know, people believe, and this is part of the sort of zeitgeist of our current society. And I say current society because I think it has to do with being affluent first world and sort of being sick of things that are artificial. And so we have a negative reactions to things that we think are fake. So who would want the vinyl car seating if you could get leather because leather is real, even though when vinyl first came out, everyone wanted vinyl because um, it was new. But now we see that the natural or we have this perception that natural is always better than artificial. And what I found in my research is, A, people cannot tell the difference, so they're actually unable to correctly discriminate between natural and synthetic for at least the series of odors that I was testing. And I think this is generally the case. And also, if they perceive the odor to be natural, even if it isn't, they think of it as being better along a whole host of dimensions. So the smell is better, it's more familiar, it's definitely safer, all these things, and even when they are actually smelling something artificial, so that they both make the mistake, but as soon as they have a presumption about it, they go along the merry line of you know natural being better inherently. And people also believe that if you even have just a little bit of natural in a, let's say, ingredient list, then it's better than having you know all synthetic. So there's definitely this sort of psychological bias against artificial and for natural that exists in our in our culture. And why I think this is sort of interesting culturally is I wonder whether or not, just like when we first thought, thought vinyl was the greatest thing, if other cultures which are just becoming sort of economic um, markets, if they don't see actually artificial as being better than natural, they've been living with natural their whole life, isn't artificial better because it's sort of indicative of affluence and so forth. But it also turns out to be the case that uh, the people who have real allergies to aromatic chemicals have many more allergies to natural versions of the chemical than to artificial. And I know there's a company called Flexitrol that actually is making artificial versions of um, various chemicals because of the allergy issue. So where, you know, in, in terms of certain products, you would actually want to have the artificial because people have, in fact, fewer allergic responses to the um, artificial than to the natural. And one way that you can sort of see that this is, in some sense, is obvious is that the natural version of a particular aroma, for instance, a rose, um, can be made up of literally thousands of different aromatic compounds, whereas the synthetic version of rose, in the most simplistic case, phenyl ethyl alcohol, is just one chemical compound. So much easier to deal with something just one from the point of view of, you know, is there any allergy potential than if I'm smelling 1,200 different compounds and, you know, maybe one of them to me is something I might have an allergic reaction to. All so right. the perception Let's of natural go. is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's let's go to what we call the roundup, Dr. Harris. We're going to bring Dr. Wild back on. We're going to go back around the uh, around the horn here one time and see what final questions we have from everybody. Hello, Dieter. Do we have you on the line? Absolutely. Yeah, uh, Dieter, you made a great comment earlier about you know the memory issue. Yeah, to me that is still unbelievable. I'm wondering if uh, Dr. Hurst, if you could comment on that and how powerful the sense of smell is with respect to people remembering it. 
Well, I would love to comment because that's what I've actually spent most of my career researching most intensively is the connection between smell and memory and smell and memory and emotion. And you, Dieter, comment on one thing, the, our ability to remember odors. That is to say that I smelled this once when I was a child, or at least it was, it was part of my childhood. And then, you know, years later, I haven't had any experience with that scent. And when I smell it suddenly again, I am immediately uh, both recognize it and transported back. I know that was the smell of such and such from when I was a little boy. And exactly. Yes, exactly. So, and that, I think, so that is actually a very special feature of the sense of smell, and none of our other senses have the capability of really being able to bring us back in time and place over decades to that original episode the way smell can. And the reason for that has to do with two things. One is called proactive interference, and it's a cognitive jargon for meaning that the first association you learn to something is the, the deep, impressionable one, and it's very hard to form other associations to that. So when we smell something, the first experience we have with that smell is what sticks, and subsequent associations to that same smell don't stick. It's like if you had your first telephone number, and then you could never learn your new cell phone numbers, whatever they were, you only ever remember the first one. Generally speaking, it's the opposite. So the cell phone number you have now, you can't remember the one you had a year ago. But in any case, with smell, we have very strong proactive interference effects. And we also have very, um, with smell, we can have very high distinctiveness. So only ever that smell was connected to a particular, I don't know when, in your case, Dieter, if it was a food, if it was an, some kind of an object, a plant, or whatever the case might be. But that it's is a very, yeah. sorry? It was an object, I mean, like, like, like a book. Or okay. a piece of furniture. Right. Okay. So, so there is only that thing that smells that way. And in your experience, it would be very unlikely for that, that same smell to come up, you know, in multiple different sorts of scenarios. Like, you know, every right. day when I walk into, into work, I smell that. Or if I go to the coffee shop, that smell is there. So that smell really has a very restricted, a very sort of unique, sort of a one-to-one -one relationship with that original thing. Even though potentially when you smell it now, it may not have to do with furniture or a book, but that smell still brings you back to that first place. So whenever you smell it, it's like, oh, that's that book. Um, even if it could be from a book that you smell it today, or it could be from something else that just randomly also has that smell, but that smell still it has very low frequency of having been encountered over your lifespan, and so it remains the cue. Yes. Yeah, the, the other thing that I like, years ago, I learned that when I was a student, the original air fresheners that were sold in houses, and I'm talking now 35, almost 40 years ago, you, know, you put them in there. The active ingredient was a chemical which numbed your olfactory nerve. In other words, it didn't do anything but anesthetize the olfactory nerve which I think is a little bit of cheating, if you ask me. <laughs> I, I don't think they do that anymore. But, you know, again, after a while, you wouldn't smell anything anymore. Mm. I have my own air freshener. I open the window and heck with it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best Peter, anything, Yeah. Anything else you'd like to add before we go over to Cliff? No, no, that is about it. Uh, that, that comes to mind, and uh, I'm glad that I heard... Um, um, uh, a, a couple of terms I haven't heard in a long time. Uh, I'm using a book, and I'm pretty sure you're familiar with it, Fairschuren. I think he's a Dutch scientist. 
he published a book. I have a book over here. I use that one when I have to explain the sense of smell to people. You know, I said, I smelled acetone. I know I was overexposed. You know, you can smell acetone at one part per million, mm -hmm. and if I expose you to a thousand parts per million, nothing is going to happen to you. Mm -hmm. but, uh, uh, but on the other hand, Fairshuren, he has tables and he has graphs, and we see the variety. Uh, there's some people smell it at 1 ppm and other people smell it or are offended at 15, 20, or 100 ppm. So there is a wide variety in the uh, reaction of people to, uh, to smells. Very true. I guess just a comment on Dieter's and, and then I guess my final question. Uh, Dieter, you've got a really good memory. Uh, the labeling actually for those early wick type uh, air fresheners, number one, they did contain formaldehyde. And what was funny about it is the label would say, you know, put the wick up 15 or 20 minutes before you anticipate the odor. <laughs> and by that time, it would uh, desensitize uh, your sense of smell. Well, Doctor, can, yeah. can you tell us uh, whether insects smell, and if so, how they could potentially be harnessed to assist in homeland security and in on war and terror? Uh, well, yeah, that's, that's a nice question. It comes from my book um, talking about the uh, wasp wand, which could be used in, as a method of screening people and their baggage at airports. And the idea that what you can do with bees and with wasps is um, simple classical conditioning. And this is something that, you know, basically the idea is that for when you're trying to detect ex explosives, um, people have decided generally they don't want the problem with using dogs, although dogs have fantastic noses, is that, you know, if the dog does get too close to the explosive and gets blown up, you know, that's actually something that most handlers feel very traumatized by. You know, it's, people don't really care nearly so much about bees <laughs> or, or wasps as they do about dogs. So. Using insects instead of dogs has, you know, partially that sort of human aspect to it. Also, the fact that bees, because they fly, they're not stepping on anything, so they actually are less likely ever to detonate anything. So um, what you do very simply is that you train a bee or a wasp to recognize certain chemicals which are indicative of explosives, and you can, you know, specify what kind of explosives you want your bees to learn specifically. And what you do is you pair every time they are exposed to this chemical, you pair it with, with giving them some sugar water. And so they learn that, you know, whenever I smell this, I get sugar water, so I, I'm, I like this smell. So basically you're training the bees or the wasps to be attracted to the scent because they think they're going to get some yummy sugar water. And then after you've trained them to do this, you can have them, you know, exposed to certain environments. You can have them in this idea of the wasp wand. What it is, it's like kind of a long tube inside of which these wasps are flying around. And because they've all learned that the smell of certain explosives means sugar water, if they were, for example, to suddenly congregate around, you know, while I was scanning you, if I was using this wand in the airport and you, you walk through and I, I'm now scanning you with it, all of a sudden, rather than just kind of flying randomly around in, in the wand, and what happens is a little camera set up inside so that rather than looking at the sort of x-ray of your luggage, you're looking at the way that the bees are flying around, uh, sorry, the wasps, and if suddenly they all start to kind of congregate as I was, you know, rubbing the wand down your jacket, that means that they think there's sugar water, which AKA means that they think that you, well, that means that you have an explosive on you. So that would be the way of using it, for instance, in um, the sort of real war on terror and a way of, you know, 
protecting us against um, explosives and so on. But one of the things, I mean, this is actually in production. Um, no one has seen this at their airports yet. I mean, I think part of the problem is if people knew that they were getting wasps, <laughs> you know, um, sort of covering them, even though they were inside a wand, you know, people have, people have allergies to bee stings and so on. And you know, maybe there would be more fear of the wasp wand than of, um, you know, the fact that it actually could be a very sort of simple, cheap, way of actually detecting explosives. And, and I suppose one of the other limitations to it is that um, you would have to have different bees or wasps trained to different um, types of dangerous objects. So explosives is one thing, but it would be very hard to get, sort of get the scent of a, of a gun that wasn't being used or, or a knife or some other object that metal detectors can, can pick up. But maybe... Uh, you never know. Yeah, you never know. Um, can you tell our listeners real quickly about uh, breath diagnosis? This was really an interesting subject. In the... Sure. Um, this is, again, going back to the comment I made about artificial noses and what they are are electronic devices that you basically um, have such that they are re they recognize particular chemicals. So one of the sort of limitations with electronic noses is you have to sort of preset it already to the chemicals you expect it to encounter, as opposed to unknown chemicals which could signify something has gone off. It's used quite frequently in the food industry, actually, this sort of being able to what's happened. Are we still on the line? Yes. Okay, it's I just heard up for just a moment. Yep. Hello, doctor. Yes. Okay, we're still I here. just heard um, some beeping. Um, anyhow, so what you would have with the electronic nose is, let's say, there are particular VOCs, volatile organic compounds, that are part of the breath of people with certain illnesses, particularly cancer. So, for instance, if you have lung cancer, there are particular VOCs that would come off in your breath. And you could, even before, this may be detectable through X-ray or MRI or whatever else from the point of view of seeing tumor growth. So if you had an electronic nose trained for the particular VOCs in um, lung cancer breath, you'd be able to have people breathe into some device that then the electronic nose would read, and then being able to sort of give indication of, let's say, you know, they're higher than normal level of these VOCs in this person's breath. This means we should investigate them more thoroughly. So we need to look and see, you know, if there's any slight possibility of any kind of tumor growth and so forth. And there's um, the whole um, different set of diseases which can be used in the same way and not just from the point of view of breath diagnosis but you could use urine diagnosis and anything basically where you can get VOCs from you can get the electronic nose to be able to identify is this a disease state or at least is this something that isn't normal so we should look a lot more thoroughly and looking a lot more thoroughly may lead to discovering that there's something that needs to be treated and that obviously the earlier you can treat any of these illnesses the better off you are. All right. Well, I guess our time uh, is, is coming to an end, but before we let our guests go, we, we generally ask them two questions. And the first is, is there anything that you'd like to add or anything that we missed in the interview? Yes, but you can read it all in my book. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, that's the second well, that, question. That was, really, that was really the next question was we were going to ask, uh, where to get the book, and how could our listeners contact you? 
Well, um, you can definitely get the book online, Amazon.com. It's the, probably the simplest, easiest way to get it. Hopefully your local bookstore has it too, uh, probably in the general science section or depending upon how your bookstore you know, allocates things to different categories, could be in psychology. But uh, the, certainly the, the simplest way for anyone sitting near a computer is, is just to go to Amazon to find it. Um, and they can contact me um, at Brown University through my email there if, if anyone has any further questions. It's rachel underscore hers at brown.edu. Okay, and the name of the book is The Scent of Desire, Discovering Our Enigmatic Sense of Smell. I want to thank uh, Dr. Rachel Hurst for joining us today on IAQ Radio for a, a fascinating interview, and uh, we really enjoyed having you. Hope we can bring you back again. Okay, sure. Thank you. All right. Uh, this is uh, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man Cliff Slotnick, along with the wingman Chris Boisel. And uh, I want to also thank our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Lau, for joining us today. Next week's show, we're going to have Dr. Richard Shaughnessy on. Most of you are familiar with Dr. Shaughnessy at the University of Tulsa. I'm going to talk a little bit more about uh, some of his indoor air quality studies he's working on and uh, the, ever, the big question of UV lights, do they work or not? We'll be talking a little bit more about that and some remediation uh, research that's been going on as well. So I want to make sure that you all come back next noon, next Friday at noon, for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. And also want to thank our growing group of loyal listeners. We had a nice crowd on today, and uh, we'll see you next week here, same time, same place. There it is.